Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal. Welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service. It comes to you live from our studios in central London. In just a moment, we will hear from the Afghan president. Ashraf Ghani on the fight against the Taliban. That's our top story today. And later in today's programme, we'll be looking at the standoff in Spain over the crisis provoked by the independence referendum in Catalonia. We'll also hear from northern Iraq, where there's been further progress in the fight against the Islamic State group. Do stay with us for all those stories and lots more coming up this hour. We begin, though, with Afghanistan. Our South Asia correspondent, Justin Rolat, has been speaking to the president, Ashraf Ghani, who has some interesting things to say about the fight against the Taliban. We'll hear that interview in just a moment, a reminder of the current state of play. It's been 16 years since the US-led invasion of Afghanistan and there are few signs that the country is closer to sustained peace. The Afghan government only controls 60% of the country and to help local forces deal with the resurgent Taliban, Washington recently confirmed it would send 3,000 extra troops. And today the US is expected to ask its NATO allies to contribute 1,000 more. But President Ashraf Ghani has said he thinks NATO troops may be able to withdraw from his country within four years. Let's hear from him. Here's our South Asia correspondent, Justin Rolat. An RAF Puma helicopter flying above Kabul automatically fires off flak to protect against the heat-seeking missiles used by the Taliban. The NATO combat mission in Afghanistan may have ended three years ago, but the war here is far from over. As I discovered when I visited the Royal Air Force Base at Kabul International Airport last week. Well, obviously, we're we're facilitating so much of what what goes on here. Um, We're moving mentors around, we're moving security forces. We just interviewed the squadron leader, Nick Monaghan, when the siren sounded. We all hit the floor. We've been lying here now for about half an hour. The uh, the siren keeps going off repeatedly. The latest information we've got is that a number of of missiles of some sort have hit the the airfield. Uh, And so, uh, you know, as far as we know, this barrage is continuing and we're going to stay lying where we are, stay where we are. 46 mortar bombs rained down. No one was injured in the airport complex, but some helicopters and planes were damaged. One building took a direct hit. The attack was yet more evidence of just what a formidable force the Taliban remain. I need to have courage, conviction and determination. Yet when I met Ashraf Ghani, the president of Afghanistan, the next day, he was bullish about the strength of Afghan forces. When do you think NATO troops will be able to withdraw from Afghanistan? Well, we have a four-year security plan, and we are racing through it. Look at the, our Ministry of Defence now, and look at it three years ago. This year, the war is being superbly managed, because we were like 12-year-olds taking over the responsibility of a 30-year-old. But we grew in the process. Within four years, we think our security forces would be able to do their constitutional thing, which is the monopoly, claim to the legitimate monopoly of power. But look at the statistics last year. I mean, 7,000 ANA soldiers lost their lives. Some 12,000 were injured. You had desertions. I mean, in effect, you lost 10% of your fighting force. No army can sustain losses like that indefinitely and continue to wage a successful war. I mean, are you telling me that the corner has been turned? Yes. You know, it breaks my heart. But please understand... 
over 110,000 NATO ISAF troops withdrew. You know, we are a developing country army, but I'm extraordinarily proud of the sacrifice. And the reason it's changing is because recruitment is up. Is it difficult? Yes, but it's no longer impossible. In 2014, when I became president, it looked like an impossible task. Now it looks like a difficult task, and difficult is within our grasp. Well, if you look at someone like Helmand, it virtually no, controls I mean, the entire are, province. I mean, it it's only Lashkar no, that isn't. No, of course, Helmand is a drug war. Taliban are the largest exporters of heroin to the world. Why is the world not focusing on heroin? Is this an ideological war or is this a drug war? Can Helmand, the conflict in Helmand, be sustained a day without the heroin component? And unfortunately, the bulk of that profit goes to Europe. We have a serious component of transnational criminality. And this transnational criminality needs to be addressed. It is not defined as a drug war. It's defined as a, well, because inter- it's a, as a civil war within Afghanistan. It is You're saying it's not that. It's not that. One, it, you know, there are multiple components. We need a global dialogue on the responsibility of producers, processors, traffickers, and consumers. And this is important because it's really becoming a major problem. And unless I've learned enormous about from Colombia and I'm learning from Mexico, President Santos is an inspiration in a lot of ways, but the other component is also this criminalization of the economy needs to be addressed. So are you looking to a similar solution that President Santos found in Colombia where you draw the criminal element into government? We need, this is precisely one component, is a peace agreement with Taliban so we can create the legal economy. You're talking about peace with the Taliban. I am talking President about peace. Trump is talking about victory, although well, he acknowledges victory no, might... Both. Con- I mean, no, but the But aim, this is not victory that the West no, would understand in terms of... No, the whole aim of the strategy is to provide the ground for a political solution. And a political solution is a negotiated solution. The president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, speaking to our South Asia correspondent, Justin Rolat, there. Well, Michael Semple is an expert on Afghanistan. He is visiting research professor at Queen's University in Belfast, and he joins me here in the NewsHour studio. Uh, You've been listening to that uh, report and the interview with Ashraf Ghani. How optimistic or how realistic is what he is saying in the the idea that that the troops the nato troops can leave within four years this four-year security plan given the context and how many people are killed so regularly and the dire security situation how realistic is that well there's a reason for uh, president ghani's optimism uh, he stated quite clearly that the the taliban had strategic goals to try and take over the country and uh, to as a whole, uh, and on the the way there to try and uh, capture whole chunks of it so they can set up an Islamic emirate. Uh, If you evaluate the way the fighting has gone over the past year, they have made zero progress towards that goal, despite the fact that there have been heavy casualties on both sides. So, I mean, yeah, it's almost difficult to call it optimism. Uh, I don't think that that adds up to victory for either side, but it does add up to what President Ghani pointed to, which is uh, that this will end uh, in some form of a political settlement. Well, let's talk about where we're at with the possibilities and the options of the political settlement. Uh, the, the US wants uh, Kabul to close the Taliban office in, in Doha, in Qatar. Where are we at in terms of back-channel talks? Uh, 
I'm not aware of uh, any uh, substantial progress uh, towards uh, you know, closing a deal on the political settlement or even uh, setting up negotiating channels. The, um, you know, the future of the, the, the Qatar office is in doubt. Uh, some of us have warned that if closing it would look very much like closing the door on negotiations, but on the other hand, uh, that office has been there for, uh, or at least the, the, the Taliban delegation in Qatar has been there for four or five years, um, and they really haven't taken any initiatives themselves or done anything you know, towards uh, progress towards peace. So uh, the situation on the ground, I think, is convincing many in the Taliban movement that they will have to talk. But that talking is not yet happening. Um, and uh, really, you know, that's going to be the next stage. Who's going to do it and how? Well, when you say who's going to do it and how, if Ashraf Ghani is openly saying that, and most people know, that very long-standing civil conflicts have to end up with a political solution and that is the only way that this is going to go anywhere, could it be him? Is he then thinking that there are ways in which he can capitalise on being in charge of 60% of the country? Well, absolutely. I mean, Ashraf Ghani is the president of Afghanistan and he has behind him, you know, a uh, you know, large uh, uh, security apparatus. He also has, you know, the, the votes of many million Afghans. Much of the Afghan elite is, is linked in there. So obviously, I mean, you know, there's no, there's no political solution without Ashraf Ghani and the people who are allied um, with him uh, being part of it. Uh, but there are still questions about, you know, what the, what the format is going to be. Um, many, even in the Taliban movement, uh, suggest that you know some of their backers, some of their jihadi allies, even the leadership themselves, are inimically imp- uh, opposed to the idea uh, of a of a negotiating process and a settlement. They would rather fight on forever than actually accept such a process. So, I mean, it may well be that creative solutions will have to be uh, resorted to um, to get those talks on track and to get to the kind of settlement that Ashraf Ghani is rightly talking about. Let's talk about the the thing he talked about in the interview, where he doesn't see this as a, he sees this as a drugs war. What what credence do you give to that over the fact that most people view this as a civil war? Uh, well, the other part of what Ashurvani said quite correctly was uh, that. Uh, this is complex and it operates on uh, on many levels. And I think that if you had like a leisurely conversation with President Ghani, he would definitely stick to his point that this is an economic war with drugs as one component of that. You no, know, you know, they're fighting over other sources of income as well. I mean, there's uh, you know the money extorted from uh, uh, you know, contractors operating in the country. There's you know marble being exploited. Economic war, but it is also an ideological war. The Taliban are only able to persuade young men to go out and you know get themselves killed because they still believe that this is a jihad and they're doing it for God. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, they're fighting over power in Afghanistan. So it's civil war, it's ideological war and it's economic war. But if you took away the component, as he is suggesting, of, of the, if you tackled the issue of the dimension of drugs, would that completely change the dynamic? The reality is that in our lifetime, that's not going to happen, you know, like turning off a light switch. Uh, it's right to point to the economic components of the war so that you know, you'd say that part of the solution is going to be seeing how you can bring some bits of the old illegal economy into the legal economy. That may not be drugs, but certainly things like the marble trade. It's about how you can go after some of the kingpins, uh, how you can you know, go after the assets which have been illegally queued. But nobody is going to be able to turn off the, um, all the revenue sources that the Taliban have available. It isn't going to happen. So it's about of multiple components 
of pressure while also uh, having a credible political process that can, people can buy into. Because already I know from, you know from my researches in the Taliban movement that substantial parts of the movement are already receptive to the idea of a political process, but there isn't one on the table yet. And is he right to look at Colombia and Mexico as good examples for at least taking away that component? Oh. Well, I think he's. Uh, I think that uh, President Ghani would never argue that you just you know lift the entire package, um, but you take important insights uh, from uh, Colombia. The first insight that you're taking for Afghanistan is that the um, uh, you know, is that there can be a negotiated settlement. However, one of the differences with uh, um, with Colombia, which I think President Ghani would go for, is that in Colombia they they talked for years before they stopped the violence. Whereas in Afghanistan, Afghans who I talk with, including many in the Taliban, want to see the violence stop first. Michael Semple, an expert on Afghanistan and visiting research professor at Queen's University, Belfast. Thank you for joining us here on NewsHour. Coming up in today's programme, the British author Kazuo Ishiguro has been awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature for what the Swedish Academy called his novels of great emotional force. But he says his wife makes sure he keeps his feet on the ground. I think it's very useful for a writer like me, you know, who's been writing for years and years, to have at least one person like that who, who still criticises me as though I'm, I'm this kind of uh, cocky post-grad student who... who who fancies himself as a, as a writer. Kazu Ishiguru, speaking to me a couple of years ago, will be looking at uh, his win later in the programme. Our top stories this hour. One of Catalonia's biggest banks has confirmed it's considering moving its headquarters to elsewhere in Spain in the event of a declaration of independence. This is Razia Iqbal with NewsHour, live from the BBC in London. There is apparent deadlock in Spain following Sunday's disputed independence referendum in the northern region of Catalonia. The Spanish government has rejected a call by the Catalan leader, Carlos Puigdemont, for mediation over the region's demands for independence, saying Madrid would not give in to blackmail and there would be no talks until he abandons moves to declare independence unilaterally. In the last few minutes, the Constitutional Court has suspended a session of the Catalan Parliament, which was due to take place on Monday. That is thought to be a day when independence could be declared. These people in Barcelona expressed their unease over the situation. The situation is very tense. We've reached the stage where the Spanish and Catalan governments need to ease tensions and make an effort for all citizens. They have to reach an accord and set dialogue. They have to talk. I am very well aware of the problem we are facing. And a solution must be found before a unilateral declaration of independence. This is like a divorce. There is no coming back. You cannot divorce today and get married the next day. Some views from Barcelona. Well, joining us now is Lord David Owen, former British Foreign Secretary, and he was the European Union Special Negotiator in Yugoslavia between 1992 and 1995. Uh, welcome to News Hour. Um, uh, Lord Owen, the, the two sides seem to be getting further and further apart. And the idea of finding a possible solution before Monday, when people are saying the uh, there may be a unilateral declaration of independence, uh, seem nigh on impossible. What's your view? Well, I think you can only go back to uh, 
how we dealt with our own problem of Northern Ireland and the Republic. And for years, we thought we could solve it ourselves. No British Prime Minister was prepared to call in help at all. And then it is to the credit of John Major that he did decide that calling in an American and a respected American, Senator Mitchell, was the way of trying to get a dialogue going. And that was really the crucial decision which led to eventually the present settlement and so, power sharing. Uh, is, I think is there, there may be an analogy there. Is, is there a sense at the moment that the Prime Minister of Spain, uh, Mariana Rajoy, is, is not even willing to talk? And what would you do in that circumstance? How would you, how would you persuade somebody that an outside negotiator might be an option? Well, the outside negotiator would initially have to go and talk separately to the parties with the aim of trying to bring the two parties together. So he would talk to the Spanish Prime Minister and obviously he would talk to the uh, potential leader of a new Catalan government. Now, that's a difficult enough task, but who can bring that dialogue together? You won't get them talking probably for maybe weeks, maybe even months, but you could appoint an agreed figure to help them reach a settlement now, you know, literally in the next uh, 24 hours. And I agree, I think speed is very important. And now, who, could, who could make say, that appointment? Who, who, would, who would that person be? Who would, who would well, make I that appointment? If, uh, if you went on with the American analogy, there are Americans who speak Spanish. Uh, an example of that is Jeb Bush, who was um, a successful governor of Florida, and he comes from a, a lineage of family, and the, his father, I think, is very respected around the world for his uh, involvement in the aftermath of the Gromyko, sorry, not the, the Gorbachev-Reagan uh, talks, and he handled the whole uh, coming together reunification of Germany as president very well indeed. So there's a lineage there. Now, there may be others. There are senators... The Catholic Church Spanish. has been proposed? What? The Catholic Church has been proposed as a possible negotiator? Well, maybe they have one. I mean, there are people who specialise in the, in, um, the um, Rome and the Vatican in negotiating between parties, and the present uh, Pope comes from a tradition of dialogue in uh, Argentina, and I'm not sure he would intervene himself, but there may be a Vatican intermediary. I think that's certainly something you should look at. You're looking for, is there a European intermediary? I mean, a French person is not in a very good position. I mean, Giscard d'Estaing is also getting older now, but you look around in Europe, and I can't see people. I mean, the two great um, European contributions to Spain coming into the European community were Helmut Schmidt and Jim Callaghan, and they supported it. And I, I was foreign secretary at the time when the, the framework was made for, that we would take in Greece, Portugal, and Spain. And not a lot of people were terribly keen on Spain at that time. They were worried about the, uh, the sort of centralized economy. Now, I don't see any people of that generation who are alive to do it. I don't see anybody in Europe 
but maybe there is a European intermediary. Okay. You need an individual to start to talk, and that means the Prime Minister of Spain and the Catalan authorities have got to agree on the person. Lord David Owen, former British Foreign Secretary, thank you for joining us. Time for the latest in our regular China desk reports. This week, our Beijing correspondent, John Sudworth, uh, is on holiday, along with a few hundred million others. Well, if you listen very carefully, there's the sound of something you don't hear very often in Beijing. Birdsong. You probably hear a street sweeper on the other side of the road there as well. For this edition of our China Desk, we've come down to the streets of this city, this busy, bustling metropolis of more than 20 million people. Or at least it was. This week, China has gone on holiday all at once, and I'm standing at a central road junction that on a normal weekday would be rammed full of traffic. So so let's speak speak to these two passers-by... Beijing is so quiet. Where is everybody? (laughs) So I think most of people go out of Beijing. They are not here. A tranquil moment in Beijing. Uh, Yes. Yes. I think most of, like this holiday, we couldn't go outside because everywhere in China is very noisy. It's actually quieter in Beijing. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) China's National Day holiday and the Mid-Autumn Festival have fallen together this year to combine into an eight-day public holiday and travel records are being broken. More than 700 million trips will be taken domestically over this period. But while parts of Beijing may have emptied out as the locals head off in search of the mountains and the beaches. In other parts of this city, the opposite has happened, like here, close to Tiananmen Square. Tourists from all corners of this vast country have flooded in, waiting patiently in line, going through the security checks, in order to catch a glimpse of this country's centre of power to mark the National Day holiday. This is your family here, so your wife, yeah, yes. your daughter, and who's in the who's in the pushchair here? Yeah, daughter. Another daughter, two yeah. daughters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you've just been on Tiananmen Square. Yeah. How was that with the pushchair? <laughs> too many people. Too many people. Kind of crazy. Yeah, crazy. Very crazy. Chinese on holiday. John Sudworth reporting in our regular look at uh, different aspects of life in China. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is News Hour. You're listening to a podcast edition of NewsHour, available twice each day, straight after the live edition of the programme. And if you're enjoying this, then why not take a look at other podcasts from the BBC World Service? The documentary brings to life stories and investigations from across the globe. Or witness remarkable first-hand accounts from important moments in history. Or try The Food Chain, our podcast for foodies, farmers and anyone who cares about what they eat and where it comes from. 
Coming up next, the Islamic State group loses more territory in Iraq. But first, our regular look at the world of business. And today, King Salman of Saudi Arabia has been meeting Russia's President Putin to talk about investment deals, the oil market and Syria. Their relationship appears to be deepening. Indeed, within the past hour, the two countries have announced a $1 billion joint investment fund. I've been speaking to John Roberts, who is an energy security consultant. This is the biggest single sign of a rapprochement between Riyadh and Moscow that we've seen. They have a common interest in OPEC and non-OPEC, and in particular, encountering the rise of US unconventional oil. But Russia is still very strongly supportive of Iran, and Saudi Arabia remains deeply sceptical and opposed to Iranian interests. So what specifically are they going to be discussing? We're looking at big investment deals, but we're also looking at some serious political discussions. They'll focus on Syria, on Iran and on Saudi Arabia's principal concern at the moment. It's ongoing war in Yemen and it's a sort of cold war with Qatar. But also we're going to see a lot of discussion, I think, on the whole question of how they cooperate to try to see whether it is possible for oil producers to find some way of driving down production sufficiently that it keeps the price of oil high to keep US oil shale out of the market. And how much money are we talking about when we look at the kind of energy deals that might be involved? Multi-billion deals in terms of the potential for Russia to invest in Saudi Arabia. We could also be looking just conceivably are the Saudis whose biggest single priority at the moment is to try to see if they can float 5% of the giant Saudi Aramco company. We just don't know. The real question is, does Russia have very much money to invest? because we don't really think that there would be that much interest in Saudi Arabia investing in Russia. And what about uh, Syria, where each of these countries is uh, fighting a proxy war? Is it likely to be a difficult conversation when it comes to Syria? There is certainly an argument that this could be part of a Syrian end game. You have Russia very strongly backing the Assad government in Damascus. But you have the Saudis can see that with the defeat of ISIS, which was for various political reasons, one of their main goals, once that's out of the way, they probably would be perfectly happy to go back to having reasonable relations with Damascus. I don't think that Syria is necessarily a stumbling block to the improvement of relations between Moscow and Riyadh, but it might be a stumbling block to improve relations between Riyadh and Washington. That was John Roberts, an energy security consultant on the deepening relationship between Moscow and Riyadh. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC. I'm Razia Iqbal. In the fight against the Islamic State group in Iraq, we may be reaching a milestone moment. The Iraqi Prime Minister, Haider al-Abadi, says the town of Hawija has been recaptured, which means only one area remains under IS control in Iraq, a stretch alongside the western border with Syria. Hawija is near the Kurdish-held oil city of Kirkuk. I've been speaking to our correspondent, Rami Rahayam, who is in Suleymaniyah. 
The Prime Minister announced that the uh, center of Hawija has been retaken by uh, Iraqi forces. Now, that's a mix of federal police as well as popular mobilization units, which have been fighting alongside uh, the Iraqi army and the federal police in several areas in Iraq. Hawija is not a massive town. We're not talking anything on the scale of Mosul, but it is quite strategically placed in between several important provinces of Iraq. It's also very close to the very significant oil-rich city of Kirkuk. And in the past, IS militants have managed to use Hawija as one of the areas which make it easier for them to move from one place to another and to make it difficult for Iraqi forces operating in different areas trying to retake the cities from IS militants. Now, since the Battle of Mosul, it has become increasingly less difficult for Iraqi forces to drive IS militants from other urban centers such as Hawija. Uh, and we have seen that this battle began on the 20th of September last month and it didn't last long before the Iraqi forces managed to get to the center of Hawija. Okay, so it wasn't just Iraqi forces involved. Tell us who has been taking part in this offensive. It was mainly Iraqi forces. Now, the popular mobilization units are a collection of, of Iraqi factions which have been fighting alongside the Iraqi army. But of course, the US-led coalition has also been providing help, including airstrikes and other kinds of help for the Iraqi army. So we're talking about this broad international coalition that includes the US-led coalition, as well as Iranian support, especially for certain factions in the uh, popular mobilization units. So there's this sort of indirect, unacknowledged coordination between two different international coalitions fighting IS in Iraq. Is this a significant moment in that there is only this this stretch alongside the western border with Syria that is now held by IS? Yes. In terms of territorial control, we can now say that the end is very near for IS in Iraq. However, that stretch you speak about is a desert stretch along the border with Syria. And it has huge significance because that is where IS and their predecessors had to retreat quite a few years ago before the Syrian uprising when they were under similar pressure, including from the Iraqi army and the American army, which was still present heavily on the ground at the time. But they managed to find their way into the desert, to disappear actually in in the desert, and then to resurface when the opportunity of the Syrian civil war presented itself, cross over into Syria, and then we saw their sudden unexpected rise, and they crossed back from Syria into Iraq and established what they called their caliphate. Now, on the other side of the border in Syria, they are still present in in the uh, desert. In fact, even after the Syrian army spoke about significant gains against IS on the Syrian side of the desert, they managed to launch a counteroffensive. So a comeback is still possible for IS, whether in Syria or in Iraq. But at the moment, especially in Iraq, they are under intense pressure. And it appears that they will be losing their last territorial possessions pretty soon. That was the BBC's Rami Rahayam, who is in Suleymaniyah in the Kurdish region of Iraq. Let's head across the border into Syria now, where the alarm has been raised about what's being described as the worst level of violence there since the battle for the city of Aleppo last year. The International Committee for the Red Cross says the return to violence in some areas is once again bringing intolerable levels of suffering. I'm joined on the line now from Damascus by Pavel uh, Kasishek from the ICI. 
DRC. Welcome to the programme. Um, outline for us the areas where uh, the fighting has uh, increased in, in recent weeks. Uh, good evening. So um, the situation um, is deteriorating pretty much uh, all over Syria, of course. I mean, we, we hear um, about the, 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 the ongoing hostilities, you know, in the frame of the of the of the fight against the ISIS, we, we we hear about Raqqa, we hear about retaking the city of the Rezur. But what we have observed, what we have collected based on the accounts from the sources on the ground, from the people who are fleeing the most affected places, is that um, there is a spike in hostilities in many other areas in Syria, such as um, Idlib, uh, Eastern Ghouta, Northern Rura homes parts of Hama and Western Aleppo. I mean, this um, makes a, a very unprecedented spike in the violence and hence the, the, the spike in the suffering of the civilians because um, this day, uh, those people are, 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 are suffering the most. And the areas that you mentioned, aside from Raqqa, uh, Idlib, rural Hama and eastern Ghouta, these are places that uh, have been designated as de-escalation zones. And so it is particularly significant that there is increased fighting there. Yes, that's uh, uh, that's correct. It's it's uh, several of those places um, uh, has been included into the the local um, negotiations have been named the escalation zones. But 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 so far we had seen an escalation, um, especially in the past uh, past weeks, and then the situation is is uh, very concerning. And when you say the situation is very concerning, the fate of civilians in these areas? Well, first and utmost, the fate of civilians. What 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 we have seen is, um, you know, the absolute lack of caution in the way the hostilities are, are being carried out. Uh, you know, in 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 all those places. I mean, just last week, Sham Hospital in rural Idlib was damaged, uh, depriving the the access um, to to medical care. Very often, the only access to medical care very basic ones to over half million people i mean and 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 this is only you know drop in the ocean we 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 have received reports in in over past 10 days of um, at least 10 uh, medical structures uh, hit as a result or in the fighting as a result of the of the of the hostilities uh, in the camps in the northeast of the country um, we have seen the spike in the in I think we might just have lost that line from Damascus. Uh, not surprising. We held on for as long as we could. That was uh, Pavel uh, Kasishek from the International Committee for the Red Cross telling us about the spike in violence affecting uh, civilians and the targeting of hospitals, or at least hospitals being in the firing line um, in areas not just in Raqqa, but in Idlib, rural Hama and eastern Gauta. Now, after 12 years as head of state, Africa's first elected female president is standing down. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was elected president of Liberia in 2005, just after the end of a brutal civil war and the departure of Charles Taylor, who was later convicted for war crimes. So what's on the minds of voters and those who are in the running for the top job? The BBC's Umaru Fofana reports from the capital, Monrovia. 
In Monrovia's waterside neighborhood, many live from hand to mouth. Without a job, they struggle to make ends meet. The candidates in next week's election have promised a better life, preaching change, real change, and change for hope. But how is not clear. For the people, though, they know exactly what they want. The next government, I want school fees to drop. For example, my nine-year-old daughter in school. I'm paying almost 300 US dollars, excluding the uniform. It's killing us. I want taxes to come down. We, the business people, are suffering. When we want to buy our goods, all the prices are high. So when we sell in the market, we can't get anything. No profit. The taxes are very high. The exchange rates are high. We enjoy nothing in this country. In this one of the poorest countries in the world, the needs of the people here are very basic. I'm here at Jala Town in Sinkor in the west of Monrovia. Sanitation is a problem. The drains are poor. And the shacks that are built here are literally built on quicksand. The people live in abject poverty. So what do the candidates have to offer to address these needs? Twenty candidates are running to become president. Among them, a beauty queen, a football legend, and the former cook executive. There are some front runners, including George Oponwea, 1995's World Footballer of the Year. He hopes he'll be lucky third time on the ballot. In a country devastated by years of war, development is a priority. Without peace, we can't do it. You know, we need stability. You know, our international partner need to be confident, you know, to, to invest in this country. You know, I sat with some friends the other day. Most of them want to come to Liberia, but the building of Liberia is not safe and stable. So we have to erase that from their mind to make sure that our country is ready. You know, for development, our country is stable. But if we can keep the peace of our country, that can work. So reconciliation is cardinal. You know, to make sure that all Liberians live together. This is why I've become the peace ambassador. You know? The other front runner is the 73-year-old Joseph Boakai, who has been vice president for the last 12 years. He fends off criticism of his age by citing experience. The Liberian people, they are aware of what I'm capable of doing. The Liberian people want to see development. They want to see someone who can unify them. They are not looking for age. They are looking for someone who has the passion for this country, who has the love for this country, who has tried over the years in some way to do the things that I have in mind to do, and that's what the Liberians are looking for. Africa's first elected female president is standing down, and Liberia, for the first time in 40 years, will witness a transfer of power from one democratically elected president to another. For the country's youthful population, the biggest dividend for the last decade has been peace and stability. Soon, they will find out who will lead them into the new era. And that was the BBC's Umaru Fafana reporting for us from the Liberian capital, Monrovia.
Just time to remind you to tune in to our sister programme, uh, News Hour Extra. This week we'll be taking up the theme of conflict resolution. How do you mediate between two parties at loggerheads? Owen Bennett-Jones and his guests will be asking the big questions. How do you negotiate peace? You can hear News Hour Extra over this weekend online and on air, air here on the BBC World Service. And a reminder of our top story this hour. President Ashraf Ghani of Afghanistan has told the BBC the war against the Taliban was primarily a war on drugs. Michael Semple, an expert on Afghanistan, told us that was only partly correct. It is also an ideological war. The Taliban are only able to persuade young men to go out and get themselves killed because they still believe that this is a jihad and they're doing it for God. Our top stories this hour. The Constitutional Court in Madrid has suspended Monday's session of Catalonia's parliament in an attempt to prevent a declaration of independence. Meanwhile, one of Catalonia's biggest banks is considering moving its headquarters. Iraq's prime minister says government forces have recaptured the town of Hawija from the Islamic State group. And on the first ever visit by Saudi monarch to Russia, King Salman has announced the setting up of a joint investment fund. This is Razia Iqbal with NewsHour from the BBC World Service. It's Thursday in Nobel Prize-giving week, which means it's the turn of literature. And the award this year has been given to the Japanese-born British writer Kazuo Ishiguro. He sounded somewhat taken aback when the BBC's Elizabeth Needham Bennett called him a couple of hours ago about the news. I'm slightly cautious because I've not had, had anything here directly myself. you think they'll check up first that the... Uh the person is around and uh, but maybe they don't maybe they just announce it these days um well congratulations can <clears throat> i ask your reaction well I, I mean well you've you've got a pretty authentic reaction there my reaction was um uh, <laughs> do you have any evidence that this is true i mean as i say i mean i really heard it definitively from you just now as i say my, my agent's phone saying they thought i had won the nobel prize yeah it's, it's a magnificent honor you know because you know, it means that I'm in the footsteps of, you know, greatest, greatest authors that have lived. I mean, um, that's a terrific compliment. It is absolutely mm. wonderful news. Um, are you going to celebrate? Yeah. Oh, well, obviously, yes. Yes. I mean, as I said, this has all happened. I was in the middle of writing an email, and then I just got a phone call about 20 minutes ago with people saying, I wonder if this is true. When I put that call down, um, a phone immediately rang and somebody else said um, from my publisher, you know, I think you've won the Nobel Prize, but we'd better check up. Then I ended that call and um, then you, literally, you know, the phone rang again, it was you. Um, so you're the most reliable um, source I've had so far. I, I haven't moved from my, my house, you know. I'm, uh, I still have kind of bits and pieces on the kitchen table where I was uh, doing some admin. So it's all a bit... Uh, I'll try and come up with a more articulate um, response uh, later, but it's flabbergastingly flattering. What a wonderful exchange. Kazuo Ishiguro speaking just a couple of hours ago. I spoke to him last when his most recent book, The Buried Giant, was published back in 2015. Here he is speaking about the influence of his wife, Lorna McDougall, on his writing. The first time I tried this novel, she looked at it and said to me, um, 
some of this is very interesting, but you would have to start again. Not just tweak a few things, you would have to just abandon everything and start from scratch because there is something profoundly wrong with the language in which you're going about things. That's pretty brutal as criticism. And was it because the language was more florid? I mean, you're known for very spare, very... The cadences of your language is very clean. What kind of language were you using that made her say, no, start again? Yes, it was more ornamented. When I went back to the project, instead of trying to add things, I subtracted instead from the kind of English that we might speak. So, you know, by taking out an of or that or which out of a normal sentence, it started to become quite foreign. And this time round, um, my wife seemed to give me permission to <laughs> to continue. I'm not a doormat. I don't always do everything. And she's not, not an ogre I, I, in that sense of the word. But she's known me since before I was a writer. So in her mind, I'm still this kind of upstart kid who thinks he might have a go at writing. So she's, I think it's very useful for a writer like me, you know, who's been writing for years and years, to have at least one person like that who who still criticises me as though I'm, I'm this kind of uh, cocky post-grad student who, who, who fancies himself as a, as a writer. Well, the uh, literary critic Alex Clark joins me now in the studio. Um, you're very excited by this news, Alex. I was thrilled beyond belief, and I certainly wasn't the only person. Um, Ishiguro is one of the, the best-liked, loved almost, um, figures in the English literary scene. But, of course, that's that's not a literary judgment. He is also just one of the great writers of the post-war period in this country. The Swedish committee said that his works have emotional force and that they uncover the abyss beneath our illusory sense of connection with the world. What do you think they mean by that? That makes it sound quite heavy going, doesn't it? And actually, they're right. All those themes are there and many, many more. But the books are so incredibly readable and they are the seven novels that there are. There are also some pieces of short fiction um, are just so different from one another. But what Ishiguro does is just make an enormous stew of essentially the kind of world's cultures and writing traditions and social forces and history and the present day and conjure up these almost sort of fairy tale um, like novels from them. Fairy tale like novels. I mean, are, are you thinking of specific novels? Because many people who will be familiar with his work will be familiar with the best known, The Remains of the Day, yes. which is which is really about, it's a very English setting. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? When he first started writing, people made so much of the fact that he was Japanese, and yet his concerns were not Japanese, necessarily. A Pale View of the Hills, which is his first novel, clearly was. It's very interesting. Um, They are an absolute blend. Remains of the Day was his third novel, and he laughs often about how critics have sort of not realised that it's a Japanese novel in disguise because it is so interested in hierarchy and rituals. Its figure is the butler who cannot see any uh, hierarchy overturned without a deep sort of existential panic. Um, but, yes, he he wrote in lots of traditions and across lots of traditions. And when you think of something like Never Let Me Go, which, of course, is probably after Remains of the Day, his next best-known novel and also film. You know, that is a sort of science fiction story. And studied by many students. It's a set text. And it's also a boarding school story. You know, When We Were Orphans, which is actually my my personal favourite, is a sort of golden age detective story. But it is also a terrifying tale of, of the relationship between 
China and Japan. Kazuya Shiguru is one of the most uh, famous exponents of the University of East Anglia creative writing group. Yes. I think he was one of the first graduates. Yes, he was Angela Cardwell's student. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think she called him uh, very grown up for a young lad. That was what she thought of his writing. So, yes. It's wonderful. I mean, the reason I bring it up is Mm. that, you know, many people have dismissed the notion of creative writing as something that that can be taught. And, of course, we know that there are many, many schools around the world. UEA is is one of the best known. The Iowa School of Writing is is another one. I, I just wonder whether people like Ishiguru are now proving that it is possible to teach something, even if it's just the formal structure or being having the space to think and write? I think it's the latter, really. It's the space, it's the encouragement. I don't think writing can be taught. Something's got to be there. And writing is not just one thing, it's many things. Um, The craft of writing can certainly be honed, but it's really about nurturing more than anything else and giving somebody the space to develop their own voice. And I guess that's what it did for Ishiguro, who had no real notion of being a writer because he thought he was going to be a folk musician. <laughs> Interesting that Bob Dylan won last year and he should win this year. Well, he called Dylan his hero once. And I think that might be the first time that has ever happened in Nobel history. If there's one book that you would tell people to read of Ishiguru's, which would it be? I'd have to say Never Let Me Go, although I just retain this huge soft spot for when we were orphans. Alex Clark, literary critic, uh, thank you very much indeed for joining me here in the News Hour studio. That's it for this edition of News Hour. Thanks for your company this past hour. Our huge congratulations to Kazuo Ishiguru, 2017's Nobel Prize for Literature recipient. That's it. Till the next time. Bye bye. News Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.